Hello and welcome to another episode of ITC Entertain the World podcast. Today we are going to be looking at the series Strange Report. As always, I'm joined by my co-hosts Rodney Marshall and Al Smudge. Hi guys, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Hi Jazz, good to be back. Yeah, been a while. Strange Report is a series that starred Anthony Quayle as Adam Strange, Kaz Garris as Hamelin Gint, and Annika Wills as Evelyn McLean. It started filming in July 1968. There were 16 episodes made, and it's a little bit of a sort of unusual ITC series because it's not really action-adventure. It's kind of more like forensic-driven police drama. If anything, I would sort of say it's a little bit like Gideon's Way, but a colour version of it. Not in the same way for scripts, just more in the f- sort of the feel of it, in the way that it's, it's driven by the police story of detection, as opposed to there's a girl in trouble and I'm a superhero, handsome daredevil and I've got a flash car and I'm going to go and beat the baddie up. That's kind of what I feel. I don't know what you guys think about that. Well, I think it certainly has that almost semi-anthology feel of Gideon's Way, doesn't it? In that you've got certain episodes, such as the episode with uh, Julian Glover, where actually a huge amount of screen time is given over to those guest characters. So you do get to to know them well. You can empathise with them. And that's very much part of the sort of Gideon's Way feel. And obviously, you know, Adam Strange used to be Gideon, didn't he, as it were? You know, he'd had his job. Um, yeah. so, so there is certainly that. And I suppose, it, you know, in common with John Gregson, this is not your typical ITC lead, is he? He's not a action hero. He's not going to be using his fists. He's going to be using his brains. And he often is employed by the police because they haven't managed to cope with the case themselves. I think it's it's a, a bit of a curate's egg of a of a series. It's good in parts and it's very good in parts, but it's uneven, inconsistent in certain aspects. Looking at it in the round, it's not a conventional ITC action adventure thing. It is police procedural driven more or less. It, it is that very forensic aspect. But if you watch it more than once and, and then you start to click how good those forensic drivers are, those are really the sort of little nuggets that are in the show. All in all, it's a show that's difficult not to like. Yes, I would agree with you there. And it's interesting that you mentioned that forensics being the sort of tiny nugget. It's interesting that they did have a forensic advisor on the series. So it's clear that, that they wanted to get those points right within the scripts and the stories to make sure that they sort of hung together in a sort of professional way, if you know what I mean. Those bits were clearly well thought out and planned and, and, and right. It's, it's the cleverness of it. Coming back to it in prep for tonight, having watched the whole series and then reading through the notes again this afternoon, those little forensic bits really jumped out at me. It, 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 is, it, it makes up for the pacing. It's a very talky series. It's very hard for it to gain pace, but the cleverness is in, in those little forensic touches and you, and you go back and you think, ah, oh, yes, that's what he did there and that's what he did there. And that, that's actually quite a, a good little thing they've done there. 
I think one of the problems is, does it always know what it is as a show? To me, Strange Report is at its best when it's a social conscience series, when it's looking at issues such as racism, whether it's sort of uh, white power in Britain, subjects like that. I think when it starts to go a little bit more offbeat with things like witchcraft, it's almost then going into the sort of Tara King type Mm -hmm. area. And I personally think it's better when it has that similar social conscience to Gideon's way. If I was sort of pushed to give it a a sort of finer definition in watching it closely, I think it's sort of half the expert, the, the forensic series with Marias Goring and half the human jungle with Strange being a bit Dr. Corder. I think there's a little bit of Sherlock Holmes thrown in there as well. I, I mean, I don't know whether the, the use of the pipe was, I don't know if, if Anthony Quayle smoked a pipe or not. I got the feeling there's almost a wink to Sherlock Holmes there. There's a story where he's mentioned, isn't he, Sherlock Holmes? Yeah, yeah. there is. And that there's a fundamental aloofness to Strange. Whilst he cares for his, his cohort, his companions, he also, as, as I said when we were discussing this a while back, he, he sort of uses them like chess pieces. There's an end game to him. On one side, he can be compassionate, and on another side, he can be quite manipulative as a character. There's an episode, Shrapnel, where um, there's a sort of hippie sound technician, and um, he's playing this awful sort of music, and uh, one of the main characters asks him, you know, what on earth is that? And he says, oh, labels are a hang-up, man. Why call it anything? And I almost get the feeling that Strange Report slightly fits into that. Perhaps one just has to accept it. We can't label it as action-adventure, police procedural. It's sort of almost its own thing. It does have elements of action, but for the most part, they tend to sort of top and tail the forensic talky bit. Nine episodes out of ten or whatever, the action comes in within the last seven to eight minutes. Yeah, and if there is action, usually it's Kaz Garrus who is involved, say, in a fight or anything like that. Mm. Although there is one episode where Strange holds that guy up by the throat, where there yeah. is a fashion episode. He's like, you know, where's Evelyn? Cover girls, that is. He does get physical there. He does get occasional bits of action. In the racist one, he does the sort of physical jump over the gates at yeah. Pinewood. And there's another one where he puts the, literally puts the boot through the window just to open the door. They're all standing there prevaricating. He just goes, bosh, with the, the foot. <laughs> This is quite a hard series to research. Not a lot's been written about it. I'm not sure if there was a Bible. We can't find any information to say if there was or there wasn't. I'm presuming there was, only simply because there are a number of running light motifs. So in a lot of the episodes, we get his backstory, don't we? As a war widower. Uh, what happened to his wife? What happened to his dad who was murdered in Poland or in Eastern Europe? And in a lot of the episodes, the taxi then is is either someone tries to hire him or one of the baddies tries to flag the taxi down. So I just wondered, there must presumably have been at least little things that were pushed out to the writers. I'm sure there was some sort of story outline, guidelines, this series was made by Arena Productions for ITC. And that's the same company that produced The Man from Uncle, The Girl from Uncle, Dr. Kildare, and there were a number of others. And this was an American company. And the producer was Robert Buzz Berger and the executive producer, Norman Felton. And these were the guys that were working in the States originally. And then Lou liked the man from uncle and liked the success of it and thought oh i must get these guys 
I'd read the reason that Felton and Berger were brought in was because the network wanted more control from the off. They were quite pleased, obviously quite pleased with ITC product, but for a change, they wanted to be in there from the start. So that's why mm. Felton and Berger came in. That network is NBC and the series was sold to NBC even before any filming was done. That's probably why NBC wanted some control. And Felton did turn up here because in the stills gallery on the DVD extras, there's a picture that Kaz Garris took of him. But he he did say he was the sort of father figure, but a distant figure. They didn't see him very much at all. So we've said about Lou Grade noticing the success of The Man From U.N.C.L.E. and and that's been cancelled by NBC. And we mentioned about NBC being the channel there in the US and having some input into that. But I'd like to come on to the casting of Anthony Quayle, which I think was quite a coup because he was a serious film and theatre actor. Although he was familiar with ITC because he'd appeared in an episode of Man of the World and an episode of The Saint, a black and white one, and an episode of Espionage. So he kind of knew what the ITC stable was like. And I think that it was good for him to break the mould of being a film and theatre actor, a bit like uh, Gregson did in Gideon's Way, and take on this lead role to maybe expand his career. Well, again, it's another example of, of where the show is different from your normal conventional ITC action adventure, isn't it? Because as soon as you cast someone like John Gregson or Anthony Quayle, they're not going to be there as action hero characters. And I think both actors who obviously had backgrounds in film, they bring a slightly different approach to it. This is Anthony Quayle's first lead role, isn't it, in television? It's an interesting casting. I think there's a lot of Quayle in Strange because Quayle always was theatrically that sort of reliable father figure, that grounded figure. But what strikes me looking at this in contemporary terms, around the same time they were shooting Department S, and I think there's a lot of similarity between Strange Report and Department S, apart from the fact that Strange Report cases aren't as exotic as the ones we get in Department S. But what actually hit me while I was watching this and analysing it was thinking, would Strange be how Jason King would have turned out if they'd gone for that original Donish professor that they wanted? Interesting that you compare the two, because something that we haven't touched on, this is the first series that we've looked at where it's that ITC three character lead role, as in like two men and a lady, which they've done with Randall and Hopkirk. They've done it with the champions. They were doing it with Department S. Later, they would do it with the protectors. This is that three lead actors in the role, as opposed to, say, Patrick McGowan as Danger Man or Roger Moore as the Saint or even Steve Forrest as the Baron. The Champions is is slightly different in that the female character isn't marginalised. I mean, she's got her own strengths, uh, mental and and physical. I do think one of the issues with Strange Report, uh, and it was brought up by the actress when she's been interviewed, is that she is very much hived off. And what I found intriguing watching it and then re-watching the episodes is that they almost make a joke of that. 
So, I mean, her character is constantly saying, I'm a human teapot, I'm legwork Lily. And yet we know from the actress being interviewed, she was frustrated by that. Yeah. She doesn't even get that Anthony Quayle holiday episode where she sort of gets to drive the thing. And when she does do stuff, and, she, and there are episodes where she contributes a couple of elements, at least, to the investigation, she doesn't get that much credit. There's one telling comment in one story, which Strange sort of puts her in the loop, and she says, ah, and for once my masters are letting me in on what it's all about. And I think that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a very telling comment, because I remembered it, and I, I remembered the series as my perception of the series before re-watching it was that Evie did much more. And she is very much, as Rodney says, marginalised. Without sounding cynical, it, it's almost at times as if she's there to add a bit of glamour, that the wonderful sort of mod clothes she wears, and to make the tea or an apple cake. In terms of the actual plots, it could have been a two-hander, couldn't it? It could have just been strange and ham. Here's Annika Wills from an interview she recorded in 2004 talking about her part. The whole thing of the, the, the men were in charge, the men were the producers, the men were often the directors. And it was tough, you know, we hadn't fully sort of moved into emancipation, you know, and I, I wasn't a sort of liberated woman at all, but I also knew when it was always a question, like in Doctor Who, of making the coffee, and in The Strange Report, I'm making the blooming cake or the souffle, you know, it's like, come on, there's, there's, I can do other things, you know. So it was always a battle. You always had to be battling to sort of get people to notice you. And also because the, the, the other thing was that... Um, as the sort of, you know, the, the, the glamorous young actress, you were always actually, you were actually being the male's fantasy. If that happened to be his fantasy, then you got the part. This thing with Evie is really peculiar about her not being used because in the 60s up to that point, we've had Honor Blackman, We've had Dinah Rigger's Emma Peel pushing the female characters in these shows much to the front, to be honest. And yet here, this is, feels like a real step backwards in terms of a female character in, in a series like this. I mean, Rodney touched on Alexandra Bastido in The Champions. Her character, uh, Sharon McCready, was an expert chemist and she did get involved in all the sort of action, you know, she was right in the thick of it. I wonder if it's something to do with the American thing, because first episode, Heart, at the end of the episode, she's being asked to go and bake apple pie or something, you know, perhaps okay. this is a concept you should be at home making mum's apple pie, I don't know. Well, I mean, that cheesy American apple cake tag on heart, you made the connection quite rightly, Jazz, with Gideon's Way, but Gideon's Way would never dream about having cheesy tag scenes at the yeah. end. Mm -hmm. And again, this is what, what I talk about, the, the series being uneven. There are a number of fantastic episodes in Strange Report that end up with some real man in a suitcase type downbeat endings and, and they deserve them you know as in it really it leaves you with that real impact and when you've taken a serious topic such as in a heart which ends up being the introductory episode doesn't it i think it's the first one shown and you, you've taken seemingly quite a serious theme which has been covered in film and tv and then you sort of end with a sort of laugh that. It makes you want to scream. I mean, particularly you've got a brilliant episode like Epidemic, and then they tag on a naff gag with the nurse in the hospital. 
to shatter the atmosphere really cracks the mood doesn't it on some of the better episodes well i mean that that line in heart i think it's i mean i wrote it down the cutting short of relatively unimportant lives in order to maintain a supremely important one mm. you know this this is you know a very much hitler-esque storyline almost <laughs> and yeah. uh, it it requires a hard-hitting ending to me mm. i mean we have sort of gone slightly off track with that but I think you're right. And I think that I don't know why they ended up doing those end tags a bit like that. I mean, I think there is some confusion here with this show in the there's bits that I feel are attempting to be like the Tara King episode of the Avengers. In particular, I'm thinking of, say, the Ron Pember sewing machine sequence. And then there's a number of these kind of little, I don't know, almost like sort of three or four minute sequences in a number of episodes where they kind of do this sort of, oh, let's see if we can get a little kind of quirky scene in there. And I kind of like, it baffled me because we're going along this sort of straight and narrow sort of forensic, quite serious thing. And then suddenly it leaps Into over to something uh, like, uh, almost like a, a different world. Covergirls yeah. is an example, isn't it? It's an, it's an mm-hmm. episode that it could have actually really tackled an interesting theme. I think the boyfriend says to her at one point, darling, you're a top model, but you're not as top as you were last year. It threatened to investigate the whole way that, you know, perhaps women are, perhaps misused or abused by the fashion industry and everything else. But then it ended up just being sort of rather lighthearted, didn't it? And as I say, the eccentric sewing machine expert who in a different series, I would have found quite funny. I mean, I thought it was quite amusing, but it doesn't fit in to the series. Yes, I liked the sequence. It was a a nicely executed sequence. It was enjoyable. It was funny, but it did sort of stop the train, whereas the other one, the one that stands out for me, just about got away with it in Skeleton when they were at the locksmiths and you've got that contrasting thing mm. between the ledgers and the, and the slow typists. That was a li- little bit of humour that seemed to work and, and didn't derail the story too much. Yeah. But then Skeleton that you just mentioned, Smudge, and I love this atmospheric monochrome blitz teaser, which I thought was brilliant. But then we go from that and this interesting idea of perhaps a cold case to suddenly they're going across you know, London trying to stick their keys into peep show clubs and cabinets. Oh, that's just terrible. No, yeah, I cringed uh, at that bit. I do think Strange Report is at its best when it stays within certain dynamiters. Does that make sense? Yeah, when it, pl- when yeah. it stays straight, it is an intellectual attempt at an action-adventure series, isn't it? Epidemic is one of the straightest and probably the best episode. We should mention Kaz Garris, who was the American. Like all ITC series sort of had to have their American for the networks. You know, Steve Forrest, Richard Bradford, Stuart Damon, Joel Fabiani, etc. But he'd only had a couple of minor roles prior to being cast in Strange Report. He really was unknown. I think he did all right. But ham by name, and he's a bit hammy by nature, isn't he? Oh, I imagine that is the character as well as the actor. I mean, he is often made to act goofy, isn't he? Yes. I mean, you, you look at his dancing at the beginning of his X-ray, mm. and you have to feel for him a little bit having yeah. to do those things. And I suppose, to be fair, Richard Bradford wasn't that better known, was he? I'm not comparing them at all. But what I mean is that Richard Bradford was only known on the back of a couple of scenes in the Chase movie with Marlon Brando. He wouldn't have been a name to sell us series in the states 
Kaz, unfortunately, does get settled with that sort of goofy character. Again, it's about breaking the drama. I think in Hostage, where he's in the helicopter and he's about to go and he says some ham-fisted thing as he, as he dives out of the helicopter. Until then, there's, there's been a, a decent mood built up and you've got a good location and it's quite dramatic. And then he has to go literally to the rescue. And he, they can't avoid giving the character a line where he, he says in a corny fashion, he's going to the rescue. Let the drama speak for itself. He, he is, as allegedly Anthony Quayle called him, the Minnesota misfit. I do think, to be fair to him, when he's given a little bit more to do, he can do it quite well. Smudge will probably disagree a bit with me on Grenade. I'm not sure it's an episode we'll agree on, but that's where Ham is really pushed to the forefront of the story. It, he defends free education. It, he shows a sort of a, a militant student side to him. And actually the actor, certainly, whether you believe the character would have said that or not, the actor, I thought, performed very well in that. And I thought, again, in Epidemic, when he sort of got cholera, etc. I thought um, he was very good when he's given a slightly darker or edgier side to mm. him. It is bizarre though with Kaz Garris's character because when he's in the lab and he's doing forensics and he's really serious and he may be talking to Evie or Strange, he's good there. When he's in the morgue with Professor Marks, he's good there. And like you say, in Grenade, he can show that he can do some action stuff where he climbs up to the top and hangs up the thing on the flagpole and all that. He's good there. But like you say, there are some bits where they just, the writers have just got it wrong, I'm afraid, with his, his sort of being a bit of a goo. And the, the constant flirting. I, I mean, we thought that the Baron was bad. But Ham is just everywhere. I mean, in the fashion show one, he was like a kid in a candy shop, wasn't he? The hospital, he's chasing yeah. the nurses. The nurse, yes. And I mean, he, he, he says in at least two episodes, doesn't he, that I'm, I'm having to move. Don't tell anyone what my new address mm. is because he's always constantly trying to avoid another ex-girlfriend. Yeah, I wonder if that's an American thing where they thought it was still the summer of love. Here's Kaz Garris from an interview he recorded in 2004. The mystery of it was interesting in that these are strange reports, strange cases, Sherlock Holmes kind of thing. Uh, they took for granted that uh, I knew the character and it was never any, any conflict between us. And, and in fact, all of our relationships with Quayle and Annika, very smooth, very civilized. But I felt very fortunate being in that situation. And that's part of the deliciousness of acting. The semi-regular character, who I think is the kind of fun element of the show, is uh, Professor Marx, played by Charles Lloyd Pack, who I think adds quite a lot every little scene he's in. He's not in yep. every episode, but when he is there, I like his quirky comments and mannerisms. Now, that's when they should have got the quirkiness and not given it to Ham, if you know what I mean, because mm. he plays it brilliantly. Yes, I think he's... it's a huge, huge plus. I, I think it's as big a plus as the taxi is. Mm. Um, a strange comparison to make. I just think Professor Marks, he never ever goes over the top. You don't feel he's just become a sort of comic strip character. Mm. And yet he's got this sort of slightly eccentric, he's got this wonderful gallows sense of humour, which I imagine anyone who does that as a living has to yeah. have. He's the fourth member of the team, essentially, isn't he? Mm -hmm. Even though he's not always there. You yeah. sort of miss him when you have an episode and he's not in it. Mm. Yeah, yes, you, you do. do.
The series was announced in March 1968 in Daily Express and Financial Times and pre-sold to NBC for $3 million. So it already got a, a network on board. It had already going to have a network time slot, which is quite unusual, again, for an ITC series. But we wanted to really touch on the sort of other what i would call stars of the show that don't actually kind of ever get mentioned as such and they are strange's taxi and the use of london in particular the little venice part we mentioned earlier they are as much an important part of the show as anything else as we've spoken in the other podcasts you look for something to hang on and there, there you've got two hooks. You've got the taxi. The taxi was such a novel touch, a really great idea for getting around London in the days when you could really get around London. I mean, the, the, the essential thing in one of the episodes, he comes home to Little Venice and he can park outside his front door. You wouldn't do that today. But, so the taxi is a hook and Mod London is the other hook. And I think that's, that's a great thing that people hang their memories on to in relation to this series. Definitely. And I mean, and part of that is also the interiors as well as the London location. In a way, I think the sets and the locations meld perfectly because you've got some sets that are just as sort of flower power, bright colours as a Tara King apartment, the model's apartment and the pop singer's apartment in the cult episode. I mean, they're fantastic apartments and they are vibrant. And when you get outside, it's vibrant. So I do think they did match the two really well. I feel that I've gone into the interior of Warwick Avenue. You feel that, yes, that could be the interior of that exterior. Evie's set is a wonderful mod, retro paradise as well. I think that set where you say the say when as soon as you sort of walk through that door, it does feel very convincing. But that standing set that was Strange's apartment and Hamsford briefly one episode, but also Evie's apartment was a huge, huge set and fast, uh, fabulous in detail. So, in for example, the set features an entrance hallway from the doors that you would have come in from the street. Then there's doors to the three apartments, Strange's, which is obviously the largest. It's really well organised and methodical, like him and his work methods. You know, there's an entrance door that you step down into the main apartment area. The apartment has a kitchen. It has a lab, a lounge area, a library study. I love the spiral staircase up to the upper area that has got glazing. So it's lit from above. And there's obviously a door that goes to a bedroom. And like, if you're a cameraman, like you said, Smudge, that's an absolute delight to work in. Then there's Ham's bachelor pad, which is only very briefly seen, like I say, in one episode mainly clean and organized but i did notice there's a large curtain that looks like it's there hiding away a whole load of mess behind mm-hmm. it um, and then there's evie's which i think is delightful it's slightly messy in her in a bit scatty a bit a bit like her in a way there's yep. stairs up to a messy open bedroom area that you can see i love the hanging wicker chair which is a lovely touch and all the little painted barbers heads that's very tara king and obviously the use of the heavy greens and browns. So it's kind of like the set is fabulous, but it's kind of dull and not vibrant to take away from the actors. I think that's so well planned. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the set, the one thing I sort of struck me straight away, how much space they were prepared to spend on that lobby, the black and white checker floor. One or two scenes actually take place in their pivotal scenes to the plot. 
you can't fault Will Shingleton on production design here. This is one of the highlights of the show. And there is a particular episode and a particular set, which I hope we'll talk about later, which is an absolute stunner, a brilliant, brilliant set. But what the, the thing you said about Strange's library's got the ceiling. I mean, first few episodes I noticed in production design terms, they actually experimented with translucent ceilings. I think there was a gap in the centre where the bulk of the lighting could come through. But I, I thought that was very good in terms of production design. But production design and set dressing in this are spot on, as you said earlier. This has the physical stuff that the Baron should have had. Yeah, I was going to say there's only one episode that was directed by Peter Duffel where they shoot from the upstairs gallery down into the set. And mm -hmm. I thought that was a lovely shot and they should have done more of that. But you were going to mention the set there. Come on, Smudge. Let's hear this set that you want to talk about. It's in Revenge. It's when Strange and the Inspector go to, to quiz the landlady. You look at that and, and it's, it's really, really natural and the scene looks proper. And then as you pull away into the live action shot, you suddenly realize the scales have changed and the colors have changed slightly. But that bit where they're talking to her in the close-ups, that's a set and a back cloth. And it is absolutely brilliant. It's the best set in the whole thing. I think they handle the locations very well because they just seem to arrive in time to open the story out a bit where you've been getting a lot of talk or whatever. And then suddenly you'll have a quick pop onto location or a little chase or something like in Racist when they follow the American guy who's driving the conspiracy, when they follow him, him out into the, to the flats that were used in UFO. That's mm -hmm. a nice little chase that breaks up a heck of a lot of talking. I mean, I'm thinking Epidemic, which Smudge said earlier, is arguably the best, and I, I think it's the best by quite some way. Now, that's a, an episode where most of it is set-based, but when they come outside, my goodness, they use it well. So that scene where you've got the police cars going through the streets and they're calling for people to come out to be immunised. Now, I'm guessing, I don't know, is that in Urdu as well as English? It's yeah. a stunning scene. And then the scenes set around the docks when um, at one point Ham has to dive into the water, etc. Mm -hmm. th th yeah. Those are really, really good. This brings us out into another point about the series. In general, the direction is very, very flat. Cause, again, because it's a talky series and it's hard to avoid. But like you said, Jazz, they could have been more creative perhaps with Strange's set and done a few more different angles. But in Epidemic, as you said, Rodney, that lovely sequence where the, the prowl cars are going round announcing the immunisation thing. And that's a nice little bit of old sleazy London for jazz. That's the underbelly, the Notting Hill type. I was going to say, that's Notting you know, Hill. I know all those streets. That's tw like 20, 22, a, yeah. 22 a room sort of stuff that we had at that time in those yeah. areas. And you've got that sequence in the docks where Ham has to escape from the boat. That is, to, for my money, the, the best directed sequence. And yet you look at that director, Dan Petrie, he also created one of the worst episodes of the show. And you've got, you've got such a counterpoint between the movements in the camera and the angles he uses in that little escape sequence in Epidemic. Mm. And th this other thing that he directed, which was absolute ruddy clunker. In that episode, you've also got the beautiful bit back at the hospital where we expect to be looking in at Ham, who's critically ill in bed. And as said, we're seeing what he would probably have seen. We're seeing the worried faces through the other side of the glass. And then I think Ham keeps turning into Jamal and back again because yes. we're getting Zebra's mind. 
those are the sort of really quirky bits of camera work which i think would have taken the show to the next level because i think this is a show that deserves because it's quite a quirky show shouldn't the direction be quite quirky as well if that makes sense there is a nice shot in that episode as well right at the start where ham arrives on his motorbike and it's it's proper nighttime filming it's none of this day for night stuff and the camera is low down so it's sort of in the middle of the front wheel that sort of height from a ground so you kind of you're kind of in effect looking up to this whole darkness of london and he's arriving and there's a party going on opposite i thought that was a lovely shot but i would say there's one episode that really does bother me in terms of locations and it feels quite all sort of claustrophobic in its way is sniper it opens up you know they're in little venice and he's he's meeting this relative out of such but then it's all basically around Pinewood and it's all quite narrow and quite tight. And I, I'm also bothered by the storyline. It's like, why would Strange go off to some peculiar Eastern European country? It, it just didn't quite work for me, that one. He already knew that the cousin was phony, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess this is the problem that we've said that this is a London centered series it doesn't even go into the home counties Mm -hmm. so of course as soon as you go into eastern europe you're going on to a studio back lot aren't you yeah that's why it didn't work the point about why he goes to the wherever it is with his so-called cousin is the same point that uh, and again coming back to professor marx when marx baits the hook in skeleton Marx knows that Strange is a sucker for an intrigue. And so he just lets it drip. He drips it out and drips it out and drips it out. And then suddenly you see that ka-ching, that light bulb moment. Strange is hooked. And it's the same thing here. It's such a massive intrigue that he can't resist going to Poland or wherever we're going. He just cannot resist it because he's got to get to the bottom of the mystery. There are certain things that Strange has in common with the Baron in that in one of the episodes, I think it's in Cult, the chief inspector says to Strange, you're a lucky devil, no official shackles, no endless do's and don'ts, especially the don'ts. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, these are both sort of characters, both the Baron and Strange, who were used by the authorities, knowing that they can actually cut corners and they don't have mm-hmm. to follow all the conventional Which I quite like in in characters. You touch on an interesting point there because he is used and and there are conflicts within this series. And one of the conflicts is within Strange himself because the establishment seem to be able to call on him at any time, like where Peter Jeffries drags him out first thing in the morning and shows him the bombs in Grenade. So there's that establishment link. But then there's another part of Strange where he's not establishment, sort of things like in the X-ray episode when... John Laurie's Doctor character is trying to cover things up and, and Strange then goes against his establishment, his conservative inclinations. And, and that makes him, to me, an interesting character. Well, you think, I mean, in Grenade, he's very establishment and he can't understand this youth culture, which he's mm. completely cut off from. And, and he fails to even realise that there's going to be this far right person, Bernard Lee's character, behind the whole thing. And in that one, Ham is very much with the students. But then later on in the series, with the Chinese hostage episode, it's quite the opposite. Ham has become this completely anti-Chinese person who says, if the kidnapper's for real, I'm with a kidnapper. I don't like yeah. the Chinese. He says that, and Strange has a really open mind to it, doesn't he? 
Ham there is drawn broadly American. It's all very reds under the bed in the hostage <laughs> episode, isn't it, really? Yeah. Yeah, as you well, say, and it's, it's, it's at the height of the Vietnam switch. War, isn't it? So Yeah, and it's the Vietnam War and what have you. And, it, and he, he's sort of very stereotypical there. And, and, and again, that comes back to the inconsistencies of the writing, I think. I felt a hostage was, was a very ITC episode and that's not a criticism at all. I just, that's where I suddenly felt, yes, I am still in ITC land because the baddies are always in a house. It's in the middle of a countryside. It's got a for sale sign on it. Yeah. There are always loads of wonderful barns and outbuildings. The tracks are all rutted and everything. And then you've got that sort of wonderful paraphernalia that they've set up to try and indoctrinate anti-Chinese sentiments into the guy who's being kidnapped. And that's where I felt, yes, that's the sort of location one might get in The Persuaders, one might get in a number of other ITC episodes. Well, it's, it's the it's the Baron-type quarry episode, but I thought that was a good episode. I, think I liked it. It, it struck me as a bit Manchurian candidate, perhaps. But what you got was a good keyed down performance from Kenneth Hay, who can sort of tend to chew the scenery a bit. And it gave Eric Young a brilliant chance to show that he's more than just that sort of usual Chinese ciphered villain. And I mean, I thought the sequences with the, the quarry and the helicopter, I thought those were brilliantly shot. Yeah, and, yeah. and the lovely conflict with his brother at, at the last, when his brother realises it's not the captured brother coming back, and, and that real conflict of, can we kill him? Again, I mean, I think that's the series at its best. It's tackling social or political issues. It's asking us to question all of these terms. What is democracy? Is the West decadent? All these political terminologies. I thought that was a, a wonderful episode. Yeah, it's good. It's a little bit of Avengers light in there though isn't there there's that miss blake who plays the aunt character yes the fabio drake stereotype yeah sort of yeah. person that was the only bit i thought mm. but otherwise yeah a great episode In general terms, the direction is quite flat. If you're going to have a quirky series, let's liven it up a bit with a bit more inventive direction, which for the most part they failed to do. But like I say, there's that lovely Peter Medak shot, as Annika was talking about in the DVD extras, where he's got a high angle overlooking the approachway to the British Museum. And you just follow her walking in. And, the, and, and as Annika says, the shot's doing nothing, but it's just setting up beautiful mood because you've got that lovely jaunty summer cue from Roger Webb, who does a masterful thing with this music. Similarly, I think with the scripts, you've got a wonderful actor like Anthony Quayle, and I just don't think he's given enough really good dialogue. So, I mean, there's a wonderful line in X-Ray when he picks up an X-Ray and he's looking at it and he says, sinister things, X-rays, no names or faces, just numbers and verdicts. And it's such a good line. And he delivers it beautifully, as you would expect from an actor with his skill. Mm -hmm. And I remember there's a Rosemary Leach line in that wonderful episode, Revenge, where she points out, she said, actually, I spent seven years too in my own prison. And those lines are so good. And I want more of those. I've got to talk about that episode, Revenge. That is a, a pretty bog standard story that's lifted to the heavens by the performances of these two people, the guest performers. They really take that and they run with it. There is the stuff of genius in that playing that makes a really sort of mundane prisoner out looking for revenge plot just makes it something totally different. Beautiful playing. 
It's so powerful in terms of the characters. And actually, I'd include John Thor's character in there as well, because obviously it is a sort of running theme in Strange Report that he's up against or up with almost a different chief inspector every week. Mm -hmm. And actually, John Thor, I know he's not your favourite actor, Jazz, but I thought in this part, he really played it well Mm -hmm. because he's sort of dogged and he's determined. He can be a little bit abrasive with Strange, but the performances of Julian Glover and Rosemary Leach, because you actually feel for Julian Glover, yeah. even at the end, I feel for him, as does Strange. He says yes. that, you know, he never wanted this man. This man should have never gone to prison. He should have no. been in some sort of mental institution getting help. But then at the end of the thing, essentially, Hansen has given up the vendetta by the time he gets to the cabin. He's with the boy. And for me, Strange catalyzes the antagonism I felt essentially Hansen had given up the vendetta there. And it's a very sort of dark characteristic to Strange that he's prepared to literally goad the man into almost killing him just to get the end that he wants. That episode is so well played, but there's a kernel there. There's an absolute core to that. The scene in the church where Mary Hansen's explaining that conflict between her vows and natural justice or whatever you want to call it. That is such a brilliantly written few minutes and so well played at how Quail underplays. It keeps it flat as well. And then he shows that niggling doubt in about the welfare of the boy. That's a lovely bit of work. Do you want to talk about the actual colour palette and the colour film? Because where we talked about the Baron being flat in terms of colour, the colour in this is is really well realised, isn't it? Again, there's not much use of red. There is that restaurant set that turns up in a couple of episodes. But again, most of the colours in this are green and brown. And I suppose it does reflect still a little bit of that bombed out London that we get from Gideon's Way, but we're getting it in colour this time. I think the colour palette's really nice in this. I think his kitchen is an orange. When they're in the kitchen, they're often having their sort of warm moments where they're either joking about the cake or tea, and it's almost like that's the sort of the chatty, I'm making a scrambled egg. Yes. It's almost as if there are different zones in the house, aren't there? Yes, that's a good point. It is a very segmented house. The colour palette and the set decoration here are really, really nicely managed, I think. As Annika said, when she was talking in the DVD Extra interview, she loved the fact that when she's in Maggie's set in Cult, how much that set reflects the 60s period. And, you know, in terms of the colours, or you know, the costumes as well. In Epidemic, Zeba, she has some wonderfully vibrant dresses that she wears. Mm. And I'm guessing that the idea was almost to give it sort of a bit of ethnic definition as well. But, I mean, she's got these pea green and orange short dresses. Mm. And she looks absolutely brilliant some of the really mod outfits that the women get to wear. There's some really fun stuff. Yeah, and for Annika, definitely. Kaz said he sort of confounded the producer's expectations because he wasn't the American abroad in his dress style. He said he wanted to go to German Street and get some happening stuff. So he sort of dressed in an English style. (laughs) 
I suppose we should talk really about the writers then. We've mentioned it, the strength and weaknesses perhaps in this show are down to the writing, but we've got quite a lot of writers. In fact, Roger Parks, Don Brinkley and Edward de Blasio are the only writers who wrote more than one episode and they only wrote two. And then it's kind of a one episode each thing with John Cruz, Jan Reed or Jan Reed, Lee Vance, Martin Hall, Arthur Dales, Nicholas Palmer, Morris Fahey, Bill Strutton, Terence Maples, and then a joint script from Brian Degas and Tudor Gates. I felt like when I was looking at and I'm thinking about the research, perhaps there was a rush to get the scripts in. And I think that we could have done with a bit more continuity, less writers, because there is some, there are some backstories that they hint on, like we've mentioned earlier about Stranger's wife. I wanted a little bit more of that. That could have come from a character profile. And like you say, that there is a lack of continuity, a lack of feel for the characters. The characters are rounded, but the writers don't have that familiarity with the characters. You do get the feeling they are writing an individual episode, even if there are nuggets of backstory in there. Throughout these podcasts, when we've looked at the various shows, there are certain shows where they've relied too heavily on one or two writers. We said that with The Baron. And I think here we've got the exact opposite. There's no way as a writer you can drop in and just write one episode and really start to get to feel that you're writing for those characters and those actors. I would have thought 16, you find four writers, four episodes each, something like that. Yeah, I'd have thought you'd need at least one to, like you say, get into the swing of things. But if you were writing three or four, at least then you could build some character development in. They did bring Bill Strutton in as an associate story editor, but I think it's sort of tail end, possibly after his script, which was Grenade, which was quite late on. I assume that was to counterpoint the thing that Annika was complaining about, that the American writers didn't get the English idiom. Like you say, you come in, you're doing a one shot and you can't really familiarise yourself with the characters, which is a shame. It drifts into other genres occasionally. I mean, we've got a couple of episodes that are bad B-movies and shrapnel. That's pulling Strange and the gang into the middle of the Eternal Triangle. That's a very odd episode. That could be a man in a suitcase standard thriller. There's an imbalance, not only a serious imbalance in the general writing between the three, but there's that two against one patronising that Adam and Ham have against her. But then, as you observed before, Jazz, when Adam wants something done, he just butters her up and buys a painting or says a piece of art is wonderful or whatever. And she's as exploited, potentially as exploited with Adam, as the girls are in the fashion show. And the supporting characters are just givens, aren't they? As we've said it before, we don't really learn a great deal about them backstory-wise at all. That's why I think Revenge is so brilliant, because you really feel that you've got to know Rosemary Leach and Julian Glover's characters. They probably share as much screen time, don't they, as Strange? It is a fondly remembered show. Maybe people are remembering it in different ways and they like it for Strange himself or for the use of London or Little Venice or his cab or the fact that it is quite talky in comparison to some of the others. It's quite psychedelic in places, you know. I mean, Colt is, we briefly mentioned Colt, but that's real flower power episode there. And people, they like all that back to the 60s thing. That's, it's, a, it's a wonderful funky pop song in that. I think it 
ended up being the B-side, didn't it, when they released the single. I think people are attracted by the looks and the sounds, and it, it does feel very much late 60s. And so, in a way, the fact that the scripts aren't necessarily particularly brilliant and the direction isn't particularly innovative, that's almost goes by the wayside. Now, I suppose it really rides the nostalgia wave and the, the warm, fuzzy feeling of the swinging 60s. It has that vibrancy to it. A big element of that is the score and the theme music. I think the titles as well. Mm. I think they all fuse together really well. I love those yellow or golden stamps for the Mm. reports and the fact that they've got these numbers so you almost feel that you're getting 16 out of thousands of strange reports that they've done. I think that's it's a really brilliant branding and I think when you put that together with good music and good incidental music, it's loads of lovely Hammond organ and those are all really strong elements because I think we felt, again, without wishing to compare them, the barren titles were three or four things going on and it didn't quite come together. With these, I think the titles and music were, they're very, very strong, aren't they? Yes, the titles work particularly well and also tie into that thing that Smudge was talking about, like an American idea of what London is like, because what you get with them is you get that almost iconic landmark. So you get Strange in his taxi pulling up at Horse Guards. You get Kaz Garris coming out of the British Museum. You get Annika Wills walking along the embankment. You know, they're all places, if you're a London tourist, you would go and see. That imagery, which is really strong and tied into that music, do make a great set of memorable titles. They also, in a, in a small way, they underscore the characters because you've got Strange in Whitehall representing the establishment. You've got Ham coming out of the British Museum representing academia. And you've got Evie just being the young, free girl about town. talking about great episodes then for me the strongest besides revenge i think which is a five-star episode i think the other five-star episode is definitely epidemic just in terms of the storyline the way it's filmed it got those great set pieces where we were talking about on location where ham actually contracts cholera and has to get into the water and i think that those two for me are the standout episodes definitely and the guest actors are, are very good in both those episodes i mean i think an epidemic peter vaughan xenia merton i thought they were both brilliant Said jeffrey is excellent in it We've talked in the past about shows, ITC or otherwise, where they're not using an ethnic cast. That is a proper ethnic cast. It feels vibrant and downbeat at the same time. I think that's almost a five-plus episode. I think Hostage is a pretty high episode for me. And Skeleton, despite the mad comedy in it, there's a good strong theme there and there's that nicely directed black and white sequence. The thing is with that one, there's that really ruthless murder of the gardener that mm. stood out for me. You know, basically, well, he guns him down in broad daylight from like point blank range almost. I do like that episode, minus obviously the let's find the key that fits the door or the door mm. that fits the key. I thought that was just daft. 
It's time for Smudgy's weekly trivia moment. When they're chasing the keys, the lists that they're looking at, you can see that they are actual sort of parodies or actual names of the crew members, and some of the addresses are actually real. But there you go. That key chase is silly because it's the dual-threaded theme. You've got the thing about the, the traitor who died and died in glory. And then you've got the real traitor, like in most modern situations now. The real traitor made so much money and established himself as a thriving figure and a pillar of the establishment. I'd throw Colt in there. It's probably not quite a five-star episode. I think it does have so much of what this show is about. That wonderful Maggie's apartment with its fantastic blues and oranges and its mannequins and patterned lampshades. And there's a wonderful scene later on where she's playing her own song and you just see this pair of white sneakers come in and then I think she's chloroformed and That's he very it. gently stops the record from playing and yes. those sort of little scenes I love that I do have a problem with Ray McAnally and foreign <laughs> accents we get the murder at the start the electrocution but the most horrifying thing in that short sequence is the fact that Ray McAnally sings I do like the fact there's a little ITC in gag there where they're outside ATV house mm-hmm. yes I love yeah, that the phone box bit I think, actually, the use of the basement set that then they go up into and it's all like in the air con and they're overlooking, I think that was really well executed. I liked it was like a story of that time, of that moment, if you know what I mean, like that sort of yeah. hippie generation. It's a great story. And I'd say four out of five. It's a really good use of the location because you can sort of appreciate the isolation. And, and as you were saying about the thing in the aircon, there's a lovely cut there, uh, and the cut is mostly audio, where you cut from the clatter of the fan to the rattle of the projector. Really yeah. smoothly done. Like a lot of this, it's very much a story of its time. I mean, Lars, Ray McAnally's character, although you could say it's a bit of a cheat, the fact that he doesn't turn out to be a baddie, because that's mm. what we think. In a way, that was quite nice. Maybe that is a sort of a, a typical strange report touch that in most shows, he would be the baddie. And actually here, it turns out he is someone who has a sort of utopian vision. He basically sacrifices his life at the end yes. to yeah, save a large good. urban area. Whereas in most shows, in The Baron, in The Avengers, whatever it might be, he would have been the baddie. Mm-hmm. Here, it's sort of, well, actually, we're not going to go down that route. This is something this show does actually do well, even if it is sort of disparate writers. They do lay down false trails pretty well. You've got him, and he did that sort of chair swing into camera, which is so James Bond baddie. There's another sort of false trail laid well in hand, the witchcraft story, because you've got mm-hmm. the thing about the 13 office workers and the mother hen, and it turns out the mother hen, inverted commas, is nothing actually to do with it. The beauty of these prints, because that's something we've not mentioned about, because Network, when they clean these up for DVD, they have done a fantastic job, and they look amazing, even just on DVD. And I know they've done one episode for Blu-ray. We talked about the Baron and how ropey some of the prints were and frustrating. With this, it looks glorious, doesn't it? It almost doesn't need a Blu-ray. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think you're going to find minimal difference. One of the things that I gained the second time around was I realised I was enjoying the fact that you look forward to a different chief inspector each week. So we mentioned John Thor earlier. I think Keith Barron is in one of them. He's a very good one in witchcraft. He is. And I mean, I rather enjoyed that. that, uh, Whereas, let's say, in The Saint, we get used to the fact that after a while, it is Claude Eustace Teal each week. With this show, I rather like the fact that he's almost coming up against a new number two type thing (laughs) each week. 
It is good. And there is so much in these interactions that demonstrates how sort of establishment Strange was, is, can be. In the racist episode, what power has Strange got that he can get front page of a newspaper reprinted? <laughs> he must have some pretty good friends in high places. I mean, that is a point that is hinted at in a number of episodes, actually, that he was the chief inspector at Scotland Yard. There's, I think, mm-hmm. at least three that I noticed that they mm-hmm. said, oh, you used to be in this seat. You mentioned Hand there. I must admit, I liked that episode. And I know that's it's a bit of a Marmite episode, but um, I thought Rini Asherson was great in it, to be honest. I love the way there's one shot in particular that really makes it for me. It's like where she says to Evie about staying late at night and suddenly her eyes kind of expand and you see the white around her pupils and you can kind of tell this touch of I'm slightly mad here. And that for me really kind of made that episode. Again, it's a bit 60s quirky with the Ouija board Mm -hmm. kind of thing and all of that. But I must admit, I liked it. The weird thing is that that episode, the story is set in 1964. And I noticed that both times I watched it and I thought, well, that's very strange. Why have they set it there? Does that mean that actually Strange and the other two have been together for like four years or something? Mm -hmm. I mean, I love the East London Museum of Magic and Witchcraft. I Mm -hmm. would like that sort of thing. Yes, beautiful set. that 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 was a wonderful set. It's quite strange, isn't it? I mean, you've got this comedy headmaster character who sort of goes out the room and completely yeah. forgets that Strange has yeah. been there for sort of hours or whatever. That's else. Avengers again, isn't it? It, it, is. Is. it is. I mean, it's a good performance from Carlton Hobbs. It's a lovely little quirky touch. I think I'm with Rodney on this one, that it offers a lot and then fizzles out in the ending. It's quite fun as a one-off, but if the show had gone down that route each week, it wouldn't have worked. They've got that girl playing Julia, the supporting character. The one Mm. who sort of, we can't make our minds up, is she involved, isn't she? Another one of the red herring paths, the Mm. young girl. I think she plays it pretty well. There are times when she reminds me of Virginia Maskell in her playing in The Prisoner. Let's have another episode that you both think is up there then. Well, I mean, racist is interesting. And I think when you see a scene such as when one of the black guys is being chased through the streets and the wasteland near Waterloo Station by these white Mm. thugs, that's actually pretty hard hitting. As Smudge said earlier, you know, that's one of a number of episodes where you think, well, that could be taking place in 2020 in redneck America or all parts Mm. of England. I think it's a shame that they allow the guy who's in Jane Merrow's character's dad, they sort of let him off the hook in the episode, in the sense that in the end, he almost becomes a victim of the American guy, doesn't he? And it almost backtracks and says, actually, he wasn't so bad after all. I don't think it gives him redemption. He's still quite a sort of a villain of the piece, really. It's all about manipulation and exploitation, I suppose. What I do like about that episode is the physicality of the location. It's a dual fall thing for me because this drama of violence, basically, well, potentially violence, is played out within sight of Parliament. And I think that's a very relevant thing. But the other thing about it, where you talked about the chase, what we see is the still then slums just literally across the river from Parliament 
because this is a series that's moving us out of the mod 60s and, and into the 70s this is a crossover series but what that little thought of thing reminds you of or reminds me of personally is the fact that not everybody in the 60s was prospering there were still so many people living in those sort of slum houses and that scene with that sort of air ferry plane, I'm sure was a technical term for it. And actually, that's a nice piece of direction on board because we get this real surreal camera work mm. and we see it all from the viewpoint of that psychotic killer. Yes. So we almost get his sort of madness looking out at all of these people. And of course, the irony that it's a black man who saves the plane situation and tries to calm him down. I thought that was done nicely. Yes, that's a very nicely done little sequence. We've got to sort of mention Jane Merrow in this because she yeah. plays that so well. She really is, to the end of the episode, she is a conflicted character. And you could see at one point where she's talking to her father, she desperately wants to believe him. You could see that in her face and it was a really nice bit of playing. Yeah, she's understated, isn't she, in that? She really does that part beautifully well. There's a lovely line which I noted, but one of the characters says, you want to know his blood type? Caucasian. And again, um, I guess we could tie in racists with episodes that we've talked about in the past from The Saint, from Gideon's Way. It is part of, of an interest in the 60s with dealing with political issues, the rise of the far right, almost mm -hmm. a sort of a neo-Nazi movement. Another point about this episode, it's one of those little forensic nuggets that jumps out at you on third or fourth viewing. I, again, attention to detail. Who would have even considered taking a blood sample from a shaving pencil? Really, really clever when you stop and think about it. It's another topical and great episode. It was just four months before you'd had Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech. Mm. So it really was topical. You know, we mentioned St. Place of Fire. We've mentioned the V-Men, Gideon's Way. You know, yep. it just shows the problem doesn't go away. Doesn't it also show that ITC, which has a reputation for almost escapism, and froth. And actually, and wrapping paper and popcorn mm. entertainment. How many times has an ITC show tackled this issue? We're talking about mm. three or four. This, so this. I think one can overplay that idea that just because it is entertainment and it's sort of cinema for the small screen, it hasn't prevented these shows from tackling proper issues. No. Mm. And that comes back to our sort of almost our opening point as to how does this fit into the ITC action adventure canon? But it does. It just gets swept up with it. It's an accepted part. And I think it's a lot because of the nostalgia angle funky mod look i mean another thing in terms of design from the kaz garris interview on the dvds they originally wanted the character to ride a red scooter how much more mod can you get you couldn't get any more mod than that when polygram had taken over itc and they were awful to be honest they marketed it as an action adventure show i've got an, one of their action adventure promotional catalogs here and it's in there with all the proper action adventure shows that we would consider like the saint and the champions that's the thing it's like a grounded version of department s it's amazing that it does stay in the action adventure canon because there is so much realism in there so many major contemporary issues I know that Gideon's Way has been described as action-adventure before, which is ridiculous as well. Yeah. And I think it's just that laziness of seeing the ITC logo and thinking, okay, well, Danger Man, The Saint, everything must be action-adventure. This is a show which probably we can't label or pigeonhole, and maybe that's mm. one of its strengths. Does it need to have an identity? Can't it just be 16 episodes of pure forensic drama entertainment? Does it need to have to be pigeonholed? 
I think it sort of lends itself to being swept up with the catalogue for want of the single reason of what we're doing tonight. It's never been properly critiqued. No, I mean, you're absolutely right, Jazz. It doesn't need to be. Except, I guess, that the viewer who sits down and watches a TV series almost expects certain things. And actually, I think, you know, within the fact there are very different stories, whether it's witchcraft or it's racism, I do think we probably get most of those things each week. One episode, I think, is another great episode, but it's kind of slow moving, but it really does make you think, is X-Ray. That story is quite complex in a way. I think you have to really pay attention to detail with it. But I really enjoyed it watching it again, as with you guys. You know, I've watched them a few times again, just familiarise myself and refresh my memory with them. And it's better this time round than I ever remembered it. I think maybe because I've always thought it was a bit slow and a bit talky and quite a complex issue. But this time round, I enjoyed it so much more. Another good one that's often overlooked I think that's probably one of the better plotted stories as well. You've got these wonderful yep. crisscrossing scenes and you've got a couple of issues because on the one hand, it's dealing with medical ethics and whether ill humans or terminally ill humans should be used as sort of surgical guinea pigs. And yet there's also the subject of euthanasia, which comes up as well, which is quite a hard hitting subject. I love the fact that um, still with his sort of chief inspector's hat on, he looks at the photo of the Harrow School and thinks there's no way you can send your children to Harrow <laughs> yeah. School on the yes. money you're making. I yeah. thought that was a wonderful moment. It sets you thinking, and it's got a couple of, one obvious red herring and one quite well laid down red herring. I repeat, this series seems to do so well. It's got such a, a strong core, which, which remains as relevant as it ever was with the thing about euthanasia and the thing about medical experiments. I mean, ultimately, for the want of anything different in a theme, it's saying, you know, should we be able to sacrifice one for the good of the many? When you get behind it, it's quite a hard-hitting subject. The worst thing about it, obviously, is the dancing at the start with Professor Marx and Ham, no. their terrible dancing. Oh, I think it's nice to see Marxy let go. I mean, Ham is embarrassing. I agree with Smudge. I think in the X-ray one, I think this is the difference between the characters. I think Charles Lloyd Pack's character can get away with doing that little bit of groovy mad dancing mm. at the beginning, and it's fun. Mm -hmm. I think when we see Ham do it, we're wincing. Uh, well, he comes across as shaggy from Scooby-Doo in those sort of scenes. <laughs> In terms of a starting episode, none of them have that kind of fast moving pace that would have made them be like the one you think that would be good as a sort of opener or pilot no. episode. They're all quite so. The only one that I thought was well paced in terms of story movement is Revenge. But most of them, because it's so talky, there's not really one that I would say that jumps out at you that would be oh, actually, you should watch this one first. Yeah, but I mean, you highlighted quite rightly X-Ray earlier. Now, X-Ray yeah. and Heart have got certain things in common, haven't they? The medical yeah. ethics theme. X-Ray is three times as good an episode. You could have plonked that in first. But X-Ray's a lot slower, though, isn't it? It's yeah, a yeah. lot more talky driven. There's no action in it as such. It's a good story, like I say, and I enjoyed it, but it doesn't feel like a start one to me. But then saying that, I don't think there's any that really feel a start like, episode. Like you say, Re Revenge is better paced and it does move well. But as I said before, it's, it's fundamentally conventional in terms of plot. 
if you look at it in pure terms of the character, what mm. is going to bring me back next week to watching Strange Report? I don't think there is anything that really jumps out at you. Looking at it from another point of view, do we get a fundamental setup of the characters episode? I don't think we really do, do we? No, we don't. What do people make of the fact that this is a series where we've got episode titles and then we've got sort of a second title or a subtitle, haven't we? All the episode titles, I think, apart from Cover Girls, are one word. And then we've got a little almost poetic extra, like Let Sleeping Heroes Lie or No Choice for the Donor. And again, it's another sort of little quirky thing that makes it slightly different, just like the fact that each report's got a number and it's been stamped. And Well, also as well, when they start the episode, that comes up and then the action stops. So you yeah. can actually read it. I think the split titles are quite sort of curiosity provoking, really. And they are maybe a little bit of a hook to move you into the programme. We mentioned the taxi, but any thoughts on Ham's motorbike? I think that's a nice little touch. It's got to have some sort of transport to get around, and I suppose better than a typical sort of 60s car that we would have probably said, oh, you know, that's a bit naff. Yeah, I think it's not bad. I mean, the worst aspect of the motorbike that I can remember is that naff scene where Evie's ties a scarf around her hair too because suddenly she hasn't got a skid lid because else, elsewhere in the program you've seen her going out with a skid lid on it's fairly plausible for him and it gets him around town quickly well it's also quite nice in a way that it sort of suggests a love of englishness he wanted a sort of old english motorbike it's almost like it's part of him trying to settle into london isn't it yeah, I'd like to have known how long he had actually been in England in his character. You know, that's never mm. ever established, is it? You know, that if he's been there for a year or he's been there for five years, I think that would have been nice to have known. The implication is he's been there for quite a while because he's sort of presented as an acolyte of Strange, isn't he, really? He must have been studying under Strange for some period of time and then they've established that relationship. And to my mind, if Ham was going to go anywhere in the future, he was going to become a mini-me of Strange. Of course, Evie doesn't have any transport at all. What does that tell us? That tells us how she stays so slim. She's always walking <laughs> around London. We've talked about some ones that we particularly enjoyed and our highlights, so I suppose we should do the clunkers, as I call them. Well, I've already said Swindle. Swindle is just a bad B-movie, and it's really badly played. I mean, there are some nice touches occasionally when Strange goes to see the, um, the banker, John Carlyle, character name I can't remember. The camera moves well when they're talking in the office sometimes. But uh, And another thing that gets to me is, what was this thing in the 1960s about all of the boys having a blonde rinse? Even John Carlyle's got blonde highlights in this episode. But it really is a bad B-movie. And if you were making a double bill, you would pair it up with Lonely Hearts because that's pretty enough too. I'd shove shrapnel below Lonely Hearts. I think shrapnel, I mean, apart from anything else, do you really believe that Sylvia Sims would fancy Leo Gen? Do you really believe that? <laughs> well, there, there you're talking about my bet noir, because I really find Leo Gen Gen, whatever, hard to watch. 
I'd put shrapnel slightly above the other two. The Gerald Flood character, when he returns from the dead, sort of 10 minutes from the end, do we feel anything for him? No. Do we no. feel anything for the Leo Gen character? No. We no. don't care about any of them. Sylvia Sims, Sylvia we, we do. do. Yeah. Only yeah. because she, we know how wonderful she is and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> no, she, she's good in that. I mean, when, she's good when in that. Flood is going off his trolley in this one and he builds it well I'll, I'll give him that he's, he's a psycho he's sort of explaining oh yeah i'm gonna kill you and i'm gonna make you look like murder suicide and he's, he's completely tonto and, he, and he's very good in that in what he does but she gets very little verbal reaction time so sylvia does it all out of the face again it's as good as we expect sylvia to be it's an odd story and, and you can't understand why Strange is being pulled right into the middle of this eternal triangle story. And like I've said before, I think it would be more of a man in a suitcase, straightforward thriller than a strange report story, really. It's not a strange report story. It's, it's, I, mean, I mean, at least Lonely Hearts is quirky. You've got things like the chessboard sort of little sequences. You've got this toy shop front for the baddie. And then they've got a wonderful little model set of the road where the crime is going to be committed. And they've got that in the back of the sort of shop. I love my little quirky set, so I've got that. It's, it's got those touches, but mm. I, th I still think... And again, it comes back to being a basic B-plot. It's a gang using a vulnerable man to use his knowledge to execute a robbery. It's, yeah. it's a straightforward, bog-standard B-plot, mm. and it's not very well executed at all. As it was the last in the production run, I can see why Annika would have put her hands up and said, no, I don't want to do any more of these. <laughs> Something we haven't mentioned is Evie's art. And even though she doesn't have much to do in the series as such, I do like the fact that occasionally they get her to do some, do you recognise this woman? What were the buildings like? They utilise her art skills properly to kind of help the investigation. No, I like that. I also like the fact that in the one episode, she's actually sort of used the, the pad. And although that's not a piece of art, she's actually thinking almost with her visual mind about, OK, well, actually, if I take that piece of paper, I can then, you know, et cetera, mm. et cetera. I mean, do we know, did the actress do any of the art herself? Yes. Provided or? Yes, she, she did. did. She did. So moving on, we should talk about the proposed second series and it going to America, California. Annika's gone on record as saying that she was asked and saying that she didn't want to go. She had um, a young child at the time. And from what she says, her and Anthony Quell had a little meeting and discussed the idea of going over to the US to do another batch of episodes and decided against it. And I think they got that decision right because I cannot see Strange Report working at all in the US. It would have been based in California. And I just think like the bits that we've talked about earlier in this podcast, are like plus points, like London, the London taxi. Okay, there's only two there I've mentioned, but they wouldn't have been there. Well, Little Venice. Little Venice, the London locations. It just wouldn't have worked, would it? Well, in a way, we sort of hinted it wouldn't have worked in the home counties. So if it wasn't going to work in the home counties, it's certainly not going to work in Los Angeles or wherever else. The more I have thought about this series, it would have never worked in America. I don't care whether it had been Los Angeles, New York, Minnesota, wherever. It couldn't have worked. Whether it's a London taxi, a little Venice location, whatever. This is a London end of 60s series. 
Um, this is why I've always wondered, ever since I found out about this proposed sort of second run, did they really have a firm idea or was it simply the fact that this is uh, an American company running it and they almost felt obliged to put that offer out? I don't know. just doesn't make any sense to me at all. To come back to, would this work outside London? No, this wouldn't work outside London. Again, coming back to the stills galleries on the DVDs, you look at all those extra shots they took for the opening titles, all those different aspects of London. Yes, we've said a moment ago this perhaps wasn't swinging in London because it is the tail end of the 60s. But it was like a stick of rock. It had swing in London all through it. It was, to me, it's an image of that time, that period in London, the American perception of it, which I think they were aiming at. Yeah, I was going to say, when you said that, immediately what jumps to mind is that Time magazine front cover where they talk about swinging London. In effect, swinging London had been and gone. And like you say, this is kind of an American idea of what swinging London perhaps was like or would have been like. It's possibly slightly out of time by the time it's made. I won't say it's completely out of date, but it's probably slightly out of time. But it's that feel and that look which I think has made it so memorable and has made it so easily acceptable into the ITC catalogue. I think it had run its course. I think 16 episodes is enough. Mm. Uh, We all said weeks ago when we chatted about um, the Zoo Gang that it had just got going and we felt that what a shame they couldn't have done more. And we know there were practical reasons they couldn't do more. But I think with this series, I think 16 is a good number. It's almost a half series, a demi-series. I do feel it kind of looks like it's running out of steam towards the end, especially with Lonely Hearts. I think maybe Quayle had got a bit tired of it and think he'd done it for a year or whatever, best part of a year, and thought, okay, I've done that. I can tick that box. I want to move on now. You know, he didn't go straight to another film. What he did was the thing he loved. He went off and sailed his boat. He he wasn't a young actor who was chasing to make his career big in his early 20s or 30s. He'd had a long established career. He probably thought, right, I could do with a break now. I think 16 is appropriate in a weird way because we said Strange Report is strange. It doesn't fit the labels of an ITC show or an action adventure show. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of almost fitting that here we've got half a series, which is mm. strange. In his interview, Kaz Garris said that Quayle was getting tired of the repetition anyway. And it, it's topical, it's contemporary, it's big issues. You have to question the fact how many more issues were there they could have picked up. Yeah. At least, I mean, it avoids doing what we felt with the Baron. The Baron would have been better off having 24, 26 episodes mm. and just spending a bit more. This looks like a, an expensive show. It doesn't look as if they've cut corners. And I think they'd covered its natural ground. Although it was filmed in 68 and, you know, NBC had already bought this show, they didn't show it until 71. So three years after, I wonder when they actually got hold of it and they looked at it and they thought, kind of, what is this? We've already said that we're buying it and we've fronted the money and we're going to put it in a primetime slot. How are we going to actually show this now? Because it's it's kind of, I may, like you say, it's strange. And maybe they were expecting a, a lot more kind of run-of-the-mill kind of show. By that time of screening, because I was sort of concerned that we were sort of screening it into 1969, 1970 and crossing over. By 71, it's essentially a period piece. 
in America, it was on at the same time as the Persuader. So that's how daft it is, you know. They kind of got that wrong, I think. Maybe they would have shown it earlier if they had gone to America and done that second batch of episodes. But, you know, serendipity, if they'd gone and done, uh, let's say, even eight or ten episodes over there, I'm convinced it would have been awful. And it would have left a really bad aftertaste. You said Mm -hmm. when we looked at the Persuaders, I'd much rather we had the 26 we've got, and I love it. I'd have hated the idea of a second series that just didn't work. The music was good in this series. The theme was by Roger Webb, and I liked all the incidental music. And that that is actually available as a CD soundtrack via network. And if you listen to it, it's got some great funky sort of of the time music that I really think is really well done. It's also got those sort of little extras, as we mentioned the cult song earlier. Yeah. The theme, I think, is a big chunk of memory for people. It's, It's so catchy. It gives that summary lightness to it. I mean, in the first episode, you've got the wonderful theme and then you've got Strange driving up to the pedestrian crossing, letting the school kids across. And as he drives up to the crossing, you've got a jazz arrangement of the theme, which is even nicer. And it's, it's just that sort of clean brass sound with that hint of voice underneath it. It really sort of attracts the ear. And I think in terms of the incidental music, I mean, I love my theme tunes, but I tend to think that the incidental music is far more important. And one of the things that bugs me, it's not the saint's fault, but the the saint, the baron, Gideon's way, end up sharing incidental music. And that drives me up the wall. I can't stand it. If I associate a certain piece of incidental music with Gideon going through the streets of London in the dark, I don't want to hear it again in the baron. And so I love the fact that here is a show which has got its own identifiable incidental music. The theme tune was sort of redone by Jeff Love and his orchestra, wasn't it? Um, Yeah. And also, in Sweden, they had a a theme song for the opening titles, which is a a nice little quirky thing. That is the first time they did that. I know they did it in Italy for The Adventurer, and that, that music's on the network DVD set and the Umbrella DVD set as well. But also in, in Europe, they had that appalling Oliver Onions taking it easy on Return of the Saint, which was the theme music for it. So it, this is the first time it, I'm aware that it happened for ITC. And of course, you know, it's a bit of a one-off that it's only in one country. Come 
I suppose we should sum up. I like Strange Report. I think it's a, a really good ITC show to watch and just enjoy and let yourself go with it and feel, like you say, summary, 1968. There are some fun episodes. There are some very good episodes. There's also some howlers, but I can forgive the howlers because we get London, we get the cab, we get Anthony Quayle, who I think is just superb in the role i like annika wills in it i think she's great i think her clothes are great i love her quirky artistry and all of that ham i'm not so taken by but you know the actor can only deliver the lines that he's given and he does have some good moments so overall it, and it looks great because it's been remastered for dvd and there's two different sets you can choose from if you're one of these people who want all the extras there's the network set in the uk and there's the umbrella set from Australia that's got different extras. So, you know, you can have a real feast of Strange Report if you want, you know, and if you're that much of a fan, you can go out there and find the paperback books. There's an English one and an American edition. You can go out and find the Super 8 version of Shrapnel, for example. There are a few little bits, even the lovely, glorious ITC fold-out brochure. I think it's a fun show and one that's fondly remembered and I think that quite rightly fondly remembered. Yeah I mean what I would say is that I love the fact that you don't ever get the impression they're cutting corners there's no Monty Berman trying to keep the budget down mm. well if you think last time out we were talking about the Baron and the main things which even though I think all three of us said you know that we thoroughly enjoyed the series overall the things that the Baron got wrong are all things that Strange Report gets right, aren't they? As in, it's not location light. There's a lot of location. The colour looks fantastic, which it doesn't on the Baron. And we haven't got this constant, tedious backlog. So all yeah. of those things work really well. And yet, I still think the parts are better than the whole. <laughs> I feel that, you know, they made a real effort with the location filming, the sets the costumes, the music, the titles, the branding of it is really, really strong. There are some really good episodes. I don't think it's in the same league as Danger Man, The Saint, The Persuaders, Men in a Suitcase, but it's in a pretty good second division. I mean, if you're an ITC fan, it's a show you shouldn't really miss. 
we've spent the evening talking about how does it fit into the action adventure catalog but it, it sort of does it's got a great mood it's got a great vibe and when you stop and watch it and think about it it's a very clever show it's beautifully realized it's got little bits and pieces that keep you coming back that maintain your interest little bits that, that see you through the shows that maybe aren't so good or the shows that are routine. But if you miss it, if you choose to ignore it, you'll miss out. It's a good little program. I look forward to re-watching after I'd watched it the first time around, and I think that's always a good litmus test. So on that note, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. As always, I have to thank my co-hosts Rodney Marshall and Al Smudge for their absolutely brilliant contributions sometimes i feel like they're the stars of the show not me which is good i'm gonna say thank you for listening and goodbye and goodbye from me and goodbye from me too You have been listening to episode 8 of the ITC Entertain the World podcast with Jazz Wiseman, Rodney Marshall and Al Samudge. It was a bitter and twisted limited production for the morning after.